On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Prohibnum and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves shall see what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all, the word, all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all round, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountains and people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the, hand of, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house, you shall not covet your neighbour's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbour's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Father, thank you that you are a God who speaks, that we're not left in the dark as to what you are like or your purposes for us in this world. And as we hear you uh, this morning, we pray that we would not refuse or push back in our hearts what you're saying, but grant us the humility by your Spirit to not just not refuse, but to actively accept and delight in what you are laying before us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what are people rescued for? What are people rescued for? Uh, I imagine if you asked a a firefighter or someone who worked in the emergency services, you said, uh, what are people rescued for? Um, They could answer, uh, well, they're, they're in danger. We get a call, they're in trouble, we're concerned for them. And so we head off and we rescue them. That's, that's what people are rescued for. But you could ask the same question and put a slightly different emphasis on it. And you, you could ask this. You could say, well, what, what are people rescued for? What's the purpose of the rescue? I know you're getting them out of a burning building, but, but what are you rescuing them for? And the firefighter might... Uh, think for a second, and, and they'd, they'd think of the things that, that people go back to. The, the people that they rescued from the building who are now reunited 
with their families, with their loved ones. They're, they're rescued for life back home. They're rescued for life. And I'm sure they could tell you lots of stories uh, about that. Now here we are, we're back in the book of Exodus. And uh, the next few weeks, we, we, if you've joined us, we were doing this um, before Easter from, from January. We had a pause over Easter. We're back in it for about um, five or six weeks. Then we'll take a pause. We're going to need to think about what the Bible has to say about marriage and, and singleness, the authority of the Bible, particularly in the light of things going on in the Church of England. So we'll have four weeks on that, and then we'll come back to Exodus again. So that's the shape of, of the term. But in the first half of the book of Exodus, um, that question, what are people rescued for, was, was answered like this. Well, they were rescued because God was concerned for the people. Back in chapter 2, they groaned before the Lord. God heard their groaning. God was concerned. God loved his people. He saw the plight that they were in in slavery, how awful that was, and he rescued them. That's what people were rescued for because of the trouble that they were in. But now as we come into the second half of the book of Exodus, we're asking the question in a slightly different way. What are people rescued for? And we see the answer is that people were rescued for God, for worship of him, for service of him, ultimately for life, to live the life that they were intended for. And it's the same for us as we think about our rescuers. Christians as believers. Uh, what are we rescued for? We're rescued because God is concerned for us. God saw our plight in slavery to sin. He was concerned. He loved us. He saw the danger that we were in eternally and he rescued us. That's what we're rescued for. But we're also going to see today that he's rescued us for a wonderful purpose. People around the world today, our friends, our neighbours, they're so directionless. They just wonder, well, what is life about? What am I meant to be living for? Maybe you're here and you're wondering, what is the purpose of my life? What am I living for? Well, here we see God's wonderful purpose uh, for us. So God rescues us. God loves us. God loves his people. He sees their plight. But then he gives them a purpose. So let's look at that now. Let's see the first of these. God rescues us to represent him to others. And this is uh, verses 1 to 9 of chapter 19. If you've lost your place, it would be brilliant if you could open it. Page 72, uh, chapter 19. And in verses 1 to 3, the people leave this place of uh, Rephidim and they head to Sinai. Here's the, the map of that. You might be able to follow that. They came out of Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. They've uh, gone down the east uh, shore there of the Red Sea. We saw them at Marah. And they were at Rephidim last time that we were with them. And now we're coming right down the bottom to Mount Sinai. And God starts his conversation with them in verse 4 by reminding them of the rescue. Verse 4, God says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. 
So God destroyed Egypt. He destroyed the slave driver that stood over them and he's carried them on eagle's wings. I guess the idea behind that is is that, that every other sort of mode of transport that was available was fraught with danger. The roads, you know, full of, of bandits. The, the sea, full of storms. But eagle's wings, well, you just soar above. You just go above all of that. God says, I brought you on eagle's wings. I just brought you directly to myself. And God stresses that he alone is responsible for that. He says, you've seen what, do you see verse 4? You've seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you, how I brought you to myself. God wants them to be absolutely sure that he alone was responsible for the rescue and that the intention of it was that he would bring them not to Sinai, not to a geographical location, but you see at the end of verse 4, to bring you to myself. To bring you to me, to myself. All of the plagues, all of the stuff with Pharaoh, the, the coming through the Red Sea, the wanderings in the desert, all of that, says God, was not just to show my strength for the sake of showing my strength, but it had one aim. One tender purpose, to bring you to myself. Yeah, like, a, like a parent or a, uh, a father who's lost a, a child. I heard of a, a man whose, whose daughter ran away and was, was lost to the family. And news was that she was in the slums in, in Brazil. And so he, he went out looking. And he put photos around the slums everywhere he could of his daughter. And on the back of it, it simply said, come home. Come home. Now, why does a man do that? Well, because he wants his daughter back. He wants her back with him. He loves her. He wants to bring the girl back to himself. And so it is with God. So it was with God's rescue of their, them from slavery then he wanted to bring them to himself and so it is with christians today we've been rescued from slavery to sin and death and the devil and god longs god's intention is that in that is to bring us to him to himself and so god says in in verse 5 because of my love for you because you are now in this secure relationship with you with me he then says verse 5 now therefore, and he lays out his purpose for them in, in the following verses. We'll come to that in a second. But let's just pause for a second and, and, and think about something which may be just really obvious, but I think we've just got to get a hold of. Which comes first in verses 4 and 5? Rescue or obedience? Look down. Set together. Which comes first in verse? Rescue or obedience? Side it out. Which comes first? Rescue or obedience? Which comes first? Rescue. Rescue comes first, and then verse 5 is obedience. Or, or come in another way. Think um, we, we had the Ten Commandments read. We'll come to them in a minute. Do the Ten Commandments come before or after rescue from Egypt? They come after. Okay, now, a really simple point. But so important, God rescues people first. 
And then he calls them to obey. We have to get that right. Rescue comes first. It's an obvious point, but friends, so many things go wrong for someone who's looking in on the Christian faith. When they think that we have to obey through the Ten Commandments, we have to get in God's good books first, and then we'll be accepted. And so we try, and it crushes us, and we just end up with guilt. We got it the wrong way around. Rescue first. And so many things go wrong for us in the Christian life, where we forget that we've been accepted first, and then we live this out. In other words, we live from God's approval, not for it. We live from God's smile, not for his smile. And so let me give you an example. You know, for last week, last week we heard a, a, a finance update, a, a call to consider and review our giving, an opportunity to, to give. But the temptation for us is we hear something like that, an, an encouragement is that we can often sort of stir our hearts with the wrong thing, with, with guilt. We think, unless I do this, God's not going to accept me. And so I have, to, I have to do this. We've got it the wrong way around. It's no wonder our hearts aren't cheerful givers. And so what are we to do? We're to remember God's rescue first, that we live under his approval. And you see, that motivates us to want to go God's way. So God now lays out the purpose for his people in verse 5. He says that he wants them to be their treasured possession as they are living out among all of the peoples. He says, all of the earth is mine, but I want you to be a kingdom of priests. Now one part of being a priest in the Old Testament was to represent God to the people of Israel. So they would come in, they'd meet with God, and then they would teach the, the people. Or it was a bit like they, they sort of go in and look at the, the mirror of God. They'd enjoy him face to face and then they were to turn out to the people and teach them. They were to enjoy God, to glorify him forever and reflect that out to Israel. And God is saying now in these verses that it's not just a sort of little group of priests who are going to do it, but the whole nation are to have that purpose. They are to represent God to the nations. And they will do that effectively if they obey the voice of his commandment. If they do that. So their rescue is not conditional on that. Their rescue happened in the past. That's secure. But their special purpose is conditional on their obedience to God. If they do that well, if they live out the Ten Commandments and everything else well, the nations will see how good God is. They'll be attracted to that. If they do that badly, if they break covenant with God, well, the nations won't. And really, that's the rest of the story of the Old Testament. Sometimes they live it out and the nations see it. More often than not, uh, they don't. Now, when we get to the New Testament, the New Testament says the same thing. So here's Peter writing in uh, 1 Peter, and he says it's the same dynamic for Christians. He says... You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, there's the language, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. And he goes on. 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We're drawn into an outward-looking relationship. We're to represent God to the world. And and Moses lays that before people. And then in verse 7 and 8, the people sign up to that. They say, "All all that you've said, we'll do. Now, they fall short of that, but they're saying as best as we can in that moment, they wanted to sign up and do that, to represent God. It's an immense privilege. Think of all of those people next uh, Saturday afternoon who, um, at the coronation, in one sense, will represent King Charles. Think of all of those ambassadors who, who, who represent him out in the world, sort of drawn in on that day. Well, if we're a Christian here, we have the wonderful security of a relationship with God, of being his personal treasure. And we have the immense privilege of representing the King of Kings to the world, being ambassadors in our family, being ambassadors in our place of work, on our street, at the school gate. And so I wonder, do we find it in our hearts today to say as the people did, All that the Lord has spoken will do. As best we can say today, Lord, this is what we want to do. So there's the first thing um, that God's people are saved for, to represent him. The second thing is that that happens as he changes us. And that's what this middle section is all about. God is changing uh, his people. So the verses are about a meeting between God and the people. Down in verse uh, 17, Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. So the people are about to meet God. And in verse 9, God says, uh, get ready, I'm coming. And all of the preparations, all of the things that the people do are designed by God to teach them that when you meet God, you don't just sort of waltz into his presence. There are serious preparations that the people take in verses 9 to 11. You can see some of those. They, they wash their clothes. They, they consecrate themselves. They, they get ready. So there are preparations that they take. They're told to hold back from, from sex. That's what verse 15 is all about. By the way, it's not saying that sex is impure. It's just calling the people to focus on God, to, to consecrate themselves to him. So there are preparations when you're going to meet God. But there are also limits, uh, safety limits. So verse 12, uh, they're told that, that if anyone touches the mountain, they're to be, they're to be stoned. Um, no hand shall, shall touch. Stay back from the mountain, they're told. There are safety limits because of what, is, because of what God is like in his holiness. Uh, a little while ago, um, we started to watch this, um, this program, Chernobyl. I don't know if anyone watched, uh, watched this when it came out. Um, to be honest, we started, someone lent it to us. We started watching it. it. I think it was in the middle of lockdown. It was, I mean, it was a depressing enough time of life anyway. It was, it was seriously intense. I mean, it's brilliant. It's seriously intense. I don't think, well, I know we didn't get all of the way through. We actually just, you know, just too much else going on. But what I do remember from it, and you don't need to watch the film to to know this, but it was brought home very powerfully, that with a nuclear reactor, with the power there, you have to to put it behind concrete and and meters and meters of concrete, you have to put it behind. And if you're going to go anywhere close to it, you have to put on layers and layers of protective clothing. 
because of the power of what is inside. And it's as if the holiness of God, if you could put it that way, is, has that same sort of nuclear power, that same nuclear energy, but more so, more so than that. To, to come close to him, to come to just the edge of the mountain on which he is said to live, well, you have to consecrate yourself. You can't come too close. And so I wonder if you noticed in the, in the shape of the, the verses that the mountain gets split into three zones of increasing holiness. Only Moses is allowed to go to the, to the top. Um, in verse uh, 24, there's a, there's a second uh, zone. In this zone, Aaron and the 70 elders are allowed to, to come. And then the people there in the third zone, the, the, the border of the mountain, not even touching the edge of it. You see three zones. In fact, that there's a vertical sort of image of God's holiness. In fact, the temple is basically a flattened version of that. It's got these sort of three um, levels. There's the, the holy of holies, and then the, the most holy place, and then the, the outer court. It's just a sort of similar version, teaching the same thing in a different visual uh, image. And so here we're being taught of the holiness of God. The, 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 the terrifying holiness of, of God. And really, the tension at the heart of these chapters, the tension at the heart of God, if you like, is that God longs for relationship with his people, with his treasure possession. He longs for that. But God is also so holy and the people are so unclean that it is dangerous and limits are set. That's the tension of the chapter. And so the overriding response in these verses to the holiness of God is fear. So verse 16, there's thunder and lightning and a trumpet. Verse 17, there's, there's smoke and the whole mountain trembles. And as the trumpet gets louder and louder and louder... Moses speaks, and God answers, we're told, in thunder, in verse 19. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 4, when Moses looks back on this, he said that you heard the voice of God. They heard the literal, audible, thunder-filled voice of Almighty God. And God warns them in verse 21. He warns them to, to stay away. Go down and warn the people lest they try and break in. He does it again in verse 24 just so they get the message. He says, stay back. Stay back because of my holiness. And the effect on the people is they're trembling with fear. They are really shaken up by this. They are terrified. In fact, when the same thing happens in Chapter 20, verse 18, just flick over the page, verse 18 to 20. They, they cower in fear. They say no more. They stand at a distance from God. They say, we can't take any more. Moses, you speak to us, but don't let God speak to us anymore. We can't take it. Fear. Fear is the big thing in the section, but the whole section is to change them. It's to... to to bring the fear of God to them so that they won't sin. It's an odd verse, verse 20. Do you notice it? Moses said to the people, Don't fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Don't fear, 
but do fear. It's sort of odd what's going on there. I think it's that, 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 that Moses is saying, don't, don't have a fear that concludes that God is out to get you. Don't fear in that way. Don't fear in the way that says, God, don't speak to us anymore. That would be a wrong fear. God is good. God is on your side. He rescued you for relationship. But there is a right fear that doesn't play games with God, that recognizes the holiness of God. It's a fear that you might call think twice before you sin. Fear. That's what's going on in verse 20. Think twice before you sin. It's a fear that can keep you from sinning. That's the intention. And so we're not to steal, presumably, because in our best moments we care about people. But also because we're scared of what God thinks. God says in the Ten Commandments, don't commit adultery. Again, hopefully, we do that because we love our spouse. But also, there's a sense in which we're terrified to have to explain that to God on Judgment Day. Meeting the Holy God, you see, can change us. Keep us from sinning. Give us a right fear. Meeting God changes the people. They know that they need to turn from sin. But they also know something else. They know that they need a mediator. They, they say to God, uh, to Moses, you speak, not God. You, you be a go-between between us and God, please. You know what a mediator is, don't you? Maybe you come across it in your professional work. It's often legal. Someone who will, who will hold the hand of, of both parties. Be, be, be a mediator, a go-between. And that's what Moses has been doing in this chapter so far. I don't know if we noticed it, but physically, uh, he's been up and down the, chapter, the, the mountain a lot. Um, so verse 3, he goes uh, up. Chapter 19, he goes um, verse 7. Uh, he, uh, he comes down, verse 8, verse 14, verse 20, verse 25. He's, you know, he's, he's not a young guy. I mean, the step count must have been pretty high that day. It must have been exhausting for him. But he's going up and down the mountain, you know, a lot uh, on, on this day. The people know that they need a mediator. And when we get to the New Testament, we're told that we still need a mediator. Not a prophet, not a priest, not a, uh, not a minister. Now, there's only one mediator. Luke read it earlier. We'll see it in a second, Hebrews 12. A mediator of the new covenant, Jesus. And friends, we never move beyond needing him. He's at the right hand of the Father, always for us interceding. And you see, again, the tension of the chapter is that God wants a relationship with us, but sin drives us away. But that tension is resolved by God in Christ. When, when Jesus became sin for us, he became the mediator between us and God. God's holiness, if you like, broke out against Jesus, drove him away so that we could come in. Jesus doesn't get rid of all fear in, in that sense. Hebrews 10 makes the point that because of Jesus, we, we do come with a new confidence. A confidence that old, believers, old Testament believers didn't have. We have a better confidence covenant we we come without that 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 fear in that sense and yet hebrews 12 it's just on the screen there doesn't doesn't get rid of all of um that there is a right fear as well it says you've not come to what may be touched a blazing fire darkness the sound of a trumpet and a voice 
But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to Jesus. And then he goes on. See to it you don't refuse him who is speaking. If they didn't escape, much less will we escape. God's going to shake not the earth and the mountains, but heavens. And our God is a consuming fire. And so there is still a right sense of fear that that rightly keeps us from sinning within the security of the relationship God has given us in Jesus. That's hard to work, work that out. Fear and no fear. Many would know C.S. Lewis brilliantly captured this in, in, in Narnia in the stories there. What it's like to fear someone who's good with a trembling intimacy. Um, maybe you remember Susan is nervous. She's going to meet Aslan the lion. And uh, Mrs. Beaver says... If there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just plain silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you know what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's good. He's the king, I tell you. See, fear. A right fear and yet loving intimacy. This is what God calls us into. This is what changed uh, them. And, and here we have it in, in, in these chapters back in 19 and 20 of Exodus. This is really the first formal gathering, the first assembly of God's people. God changed them as they met with him. He gave them a right fear of sin, a right need for the mediator. And God wants to do the same for us as we gather with him, as we assemble with God's people, as we meet with him, as we gather Sunday by Sunday, God is about changing us so that we realize that we need to fight sin, that we desperately need the mediator, Jesus. And that sort of meeting with God, being changed by him, is so important as we represent God to the world. Someone said that probably the most effective strategy for us to reach the world in the next 30 years is just going to be turning up Sunday by Sunday at church being changed by God. That that's really a great strategy for us in the next generation in a secular age to keep meeting with God and being changed by him. So that's what God rescues us uh, for, that we'd represent him as he changes us finally so that we live the good life. And this brings us to chapter 20. So here are the people, they're in relationship with God, they're changed to fight sin and run to the mediator, but how are they actually meant to live? What are they actually meant to do? And the answer is, they're to live out God's character. And that's what the Ten Commandments is all about. We're to represent him in the world by showing what God is, is like. Now notice again verse, uh, verse 2, before we get to the first commandment, that God reminds them that they're a rescued people. He starts there. This isn't works or, uh, or earning their way. They're a rescued people. Now, we don't have time to go through all of the, the, the Ten Commandments um, here. It looks like God is formalizing some, some stuff that he's already woven into creation, into the conscience of all people, not just, not just Israel. So things like don't murder and don't lie have already functioned in, in Genesis to, to, to show how people should and shouldn't behave. Um, God's already revealed that he loves life and, and truth. 
And it's likely that we're meant to understand the, the, the commandments in two parts. If you want a bit of a way around the commandments as you, as you go home, the, f- the first half is about loving God. The second half, about loving neighbor. The, the f- probably the fifth commandment goes with the first half. It could go either way, but the, the, there's something there. And the big aim of, of God's law, one of the first aims of God's law, is to reveal God's character. And particularly to reveal it in contrast to Pharaoh and what his regime and his world was like. So in Egypt, you were slaves to productivity. But in the fourth commandment, you are to have rest. In Egypt, you were open to to the greed of of the powerful, to, to exploitation. But the eighth commandment protects you against that. No one, however powerful they are, is meant to be stealing from other people. You see, in contrast to to Pharaoh's regime, this is God's good life that he lays out for his people. And these laws and and the the case studies that we'll we'll see in, in the next couple of chapters next week reveal God's beauty so that as we live them out, they reveal the beauty of God and we're transformed into God's character. We resist adultery and we become faithful like God. We resist coveting and we become generous like God. You see, there's a good purpose behind the law. You and I, we very often approach these as sort of, this is the narrow life. This is the restrictive life. God sort of slaps some laws on his people at the rescue. They were in slavery and now they're, you know, they're now bound by these ten. Not at all. That's not the intention of these. This is the good life. This is what is good for a a nation, for an individual, for a a society. This is good and has been, wherever it's been recognized and lived at, has been good for individuals and society. When, When we walk away from this, we wreck lives. We wreck our lives. We wreck our society. So take the first commandment, no other gods. Why does God say that? Is God just feeding his ego? No, no. God knows that when we go after other gods, they take from us. They bend us out of shape. You and I look no different to the world when we just go after gods. We don't represent God. So take Mr. or Mrs. Average Bromley Christian. Like me, like, like you. We probably have a range of idols that we just flip between on any given week. Someday we bow down to the God of of success or career, we obsessively check our bank balance. We, we, we want to get a bit higher up. Sometimes we just tie our emotional life to, to the success of our football team and it goes up and it goes down. Sometimes we tie our emotional life to being liked, our appearance or the perfect house or the children's education. Sometimes it's just simply the God of just getting everything right and when we fail our own standards, we beat up on ourselves. You see, the idols of this world, they never, they never deliver what they promise. They never deliver the satisfaction we look for. And so Mr. and Mrs. Average Bromley Christian are exhausted. We're exhausted because we're serving our idols. We go looking after them. So why does God say no idols? To restrict us? No, to free us. To free us for the good life. Because God knows that only he is the fountain in the desert. And so he warns against the other gods and advertises himself and invites us to come to him. 
But it's true, God's people are not saved for a vacuum. They're not saved and then said, just off you go and live how you want. Because that sort of independent living was the problem anyway. We're saved from slavery for life. So that we can live out the first commandment and the, then the, the other nine uh, as well. This is God's life for us. And it's the same when we get to the New Testament. Some people think, oh, the Old Testament, that's about sort of law, and the New Testament's about grace. The Old Testament's full of grace as well. And in Jesus, well, he reaffirms this law. In fact, he sets the bar more radically high. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, hatred is as serious as murder, lust is as serious as adultery. There's grace and law throughout. And that's no surprise from the God who doesn't change. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Love and obedience, they go together. They go together so often in relationships, don't they? The marriage relationship is preserved you know, through, through the rule, you don't sleep with someone else. There's a rule, there's love. The two go together, same in a friendship. You, you learn the likes and dislikes of a friend. If they like, um, if you make a friend and you find out that they love Beethoven, and um, when you get in the car and every time they're in your car you play sort of death metal, you're not, you haven't listened to them. You, you haven't learned the rules of friendship. You see, there's love, and, and there are rules for that. And Christians are saved and, and rescued. And if we want a growing, closer relationship with the Lord, well, we'll live out these laws. And so I wonder which one it is for you this week to enjoy a closer relationship with the Lord. Maybe it's turning from the the idols. Maybe it's the negative of of fighting uh, hatred in your heart. Maybe it's the positives of, of rest, of being the person who can turn the work emails off and rest in God. Some of us are caring for sick parents and seeking to honor the Lord in that. Others are resisting coveting so that we can be generous. God wants to change us as we do so. He wants us to reveal his character to the world around us, to look different from them. But as we do so, we'll just pick up, as we draw things together, we'll pick up the other two uses of the law, really. So we'll reveal God's character. But you try and live the Ten Commandments for two or three hours, and you will realize the second thing. That the law is given to show that we need a saviour, we need a rescuer. And so we'll come back in seeking forgiveness as we do that. But as we are forgiven in the saviour, it will then send us back out to the law again as forgiven people to live out the truth of God's word. It's a sort of virtuous circle. We see God's character, we live it out, we fall short, we see we need the saviour, we ask forgiveness, we come back and live out the law and God's character And on we go in life. What has God rescued you for? Because he loves you. Because he's drawn you into a precious relationship. But also because he's got a great purpose for your life this week. To represent him to the world as you're changed, as you meet with him, as you live out his character. As we close, a, a letter from... A letter to a man called Diognetus was discovered from the first few centuries. Here's um, here's what it it, it said. He was speaking about his observation of Christians 
He said, I want to tell you about Christians who display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure, endure all things as if foreigners. They marry, they beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They're in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they're citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. What did these Christians do? They lived out the Ten Commandments. They lived out the Ten Commandments. They knew they were citizens of heaven. They didn't fear the world, therefore. They feared God. They didn't murder their, their children. They kept the commandment. There was no adultery, no stealing. They were generous in their lives. They represented God and people couldn't explain them. What is our strategy? What does God want for us in the world this week? This is his purpose for your life, for my life. That we represent him to the world. Peter said, may they see our good deeds and glorify God on the day that he returns. Let's pray. Please help us, our Father, to live out your purposes for our lives in this world, in the security of the relationship that you brought us into. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.